Do you want to learn how to live in peace with others? Learn it by watching the example of others. Hey, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. Welcome back, and as we've seen so far in Ephesians, especially the last several studies of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has been encouraging his readers, which originally were the Ephesian Christians and of course now includes us, he's been encouraging us to live in peace with people that the world tells us to hate, with our enemies. Uh, in fact, maybe they are people that we used to hate or might even still hate in some way today. Now, obviously this is much easier said than done, right? And so Paul begins Ephesians chapter 3, which we pick up today, by showing that he himself is an example. He practices what he preaches. He's going to show how he is living in peace with those who used to be his enemies and also some of the consequences that come from that. Uh, Paul's in prison <laughs> as a result of his stand on peace, his stand for peace. Um, but Paul knows that this will only serve to prove the truth of what he's teaching, okay? Uh, Paul leads by example. And uh, so we as the church, we are supposed to be an example to the world, but we can look to the example of Paul, and of course, prior to Paul, the example of Jesus on how this works, okay? So that's where we're headed today in our study of Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 7. Make sure you stick around for that. Before we get to that, though, we're going to consider a question from a reader that was sent in recently by email about... Uh, the question is about the traditional teaching on hell. New email. So here's the question from the reader. Hi, Jeremy. I would just like to ask, because I still get anxiety over hell, what are we to do with testimonies about hell? Sometimes I think that it may be from God redirecting us, but I also believe that there might be no hell. The only thing stopping me from holding that view are the testimonies and books saying it's divine revelation. Okay, so um, this person probably sent in the question because maybe they heard some of my podcasts on hell or um, I've written a book on hell. The book is titled What is Hell? And you can get it on Amazon or Apple or anywhere, any place books are sold, really, paperback or digital copies. And I also have an online course about hell at my discipleship group at redeeminggod.com. But in the book, I challenge, uh, I sort of survey and challenge the three main views on hell. And then I present sort of a fourth view, what I believe the Bible actually teaches regarding the doctrine of hell. Now, it's a shocking and surprising book, hopefully liberating as well. And I have heard mostly good things from those who've read it, that it has been very encouraging to them. Now, I, I don't really cover this issue of testimonies that this, this reader sent in, these, these visions of hell that some people claim to have, and um, maybe I should have said something about it, but I didn't, so I'm going to try to respond to it here with this question. Uh, bottom line is, I tend to be very skeptical of visions of hell, uh, testimonies about people who visited hell or saw hell or experienced hell in a dream or vision or something like that. And I'm skeptical of them for three reasons. First... We must always be skeptical of, uh, quote-unquote, visions or dreams or testimonies that are not found specifically in Scripture. All right? Uh, scripture is the ultimate 
written revelation from God. And so all other forms of revelation must be filtered through the lens of Scripture. Uh, so in my understanding of Scripture, as I talk about in the book, there are no direct visions or revelations of hell as a place of suffering, you know, or torture, or everlasting burning. Yes, I talk about this story of Lazarus, uh, the sick man and Lazarus in Luke, uh, but again, get my book and, and see that. But any dream then, or vision, that a person today has, which you know they claim to be about hell, it, it needs to line up with what is revealed in Scripture. And if it doesn't, if it contradicts the Bible, then it can be rejected, safely rejected. So that's my first thing. I don't, I don't think the Bible contains visions of this, and so, so therefore any visions today must be suspect. Second, though, uh, the human mind, and here's really something quite significant, the human mind is quite susceptible to the power of suggestion. And this includes visions, but also especially dreams. Uh, I'm sure you have noticed— and if you haven't, take note of this. Next time you have dreams, you wake up in the morning. Usually our dreams seem to be influenced, or they somewhat follow the events or experiences or worries that are at the forefront of your mind when you fall asleep, or even that have been, uh, you know, primary on your mind for the previous couple of days. I mean, if you're worried about a test at school or a presentation at work or some situation with your spouse, you are likely to have dreams about those sorts of things. And I often find that when I read about people who've had visions of hell or dreams about hell or something like that, usually it's because they have been reading about hell or watching movies about hell or, or listening to some pastor teach about the horrors of hell or something like that. And so they, were, they are worried about it, they're concerned about it, they're studying about it, they're thinking a lot about it, and then they have a dream about it. Well, the dream of hell doesn't necessarily mean this is a divine revelation to them from God about hell. No, it means they've been thinking about it, reading about it, studying about it, just like all of our other dreams. Look, when I'm studying a passage of Scripture and struggling with it, it is not uncommon for me to have dreams about the text. In fact, there have been several times in my life where the dream sort of does give me help on understanding that text, okay? And I wake up in the morning, and it's sort of a solution. Your mind sort of works through things that it has been struggling with and thinking about during the uh, previous hours, days, or even weeks, okay? Uh, it's, it's not just Scripture, though. Sometimes if I've been working on my, I don't know, my car or, you know, some problem at work or something— there's, there's times where I'll have dreams about that, and sometimes it's solutions, sometimes it's just crazy dream stuff. Um, uh, but but that's, that's, how, that's how dreams work. And so, again, if you look at, a lot of times these people who, who share visions or dreams of hell, they don't tell you necessarily the background story on what they were thinking about or studying about or worried about prior to having this vision. But uh, in all cases where you do learn about the background, you see that these dreams and so on didn't come out of nowhere. They, they've been thinking about it, worried about it, and so on. Sometimes even you will discover that they are really into uh, like horror movies and horror films. Um, and so a lot of times these sorts of things and imagery that they see on these sorts of things influence these dreams, these horrific visions that they have as well. And so, uh, but th then they turn around and they write a book about it and uh, become bestsellers and make a lot of money. And again, that sort of makes the whole issue suspect as well. 
Okay, so so that's the second thing. Look, someone has a dream or vision about hell. It doesn't necessarily mean it's from God. It's a result of just the way our mind works in relation to what our mind has been occupied with uh, previously. Okay, third then, sort of the third reason I find these dreams suspect is um, you don't find these dreams just with Christians who worship God uh, through Jesus Christ. Uh, Lots of non-Christians of other religious groups have similar dreams, at least they claim to, about this place of suffering and torture in the afterlife. And you can read accounts of these elsewhere. Muslims have them. Uh, pagans, uh, not pagans. By pagans, I don't mean non-Christians. I mean those who follow Norse mythology, right? Uh, such as the, uh, they, they worship Odin, the Odinists, and Thor. Okay, there are people who who follow that sort of a religion. And uh, they have these sorts of stories. In my book, I talk about some of the, the myths and stories that were common among the Egyptians, okay? And so some people see this as evidence. Well, look, lots of people have dreams and visions about hell, not just Christians, so therefore this is a testimony. I take it the other way, um, or, or you could take it really either way, just because different people from different cultures and different religions have similar dreams. This doesn't mean necessarily they're from God, but it also doesn't necessarily mean they aren't. It just means that stories of, the one thing we do know though, is that stories of uh, suffering and burning and, and so on after death, they're not unique to Christianity. Okay, and so if a person is not seeking the truth from God and they have these dreams, well, then where did they come from? They're just as likely to have come from, say, Satan, who wants us to live in fear, who wants us to live scared uh, rather than in truth and love and hope and peace. Uh, They're almost more likely, I would argue, to come from a negative spiritual source than a positive spiritual source. Uh, in this case, okay? I mean, after all, 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but a power of love and of sound mind, okay? So God is a God of peace, not a God of fear, not a God of punishment and torture. And so if dreams and visions about this place of suffering and burning and torture after death lead us to live in fear, then I argue that those dreams do not come from God, because that is not the God we serve. That is not the God revealed in Jesus Christ. All right, so I don't give credibility to those visions of hell that some people claim to have. God doesn't threaten us. Let's put it this way. God does not threaten us into a relationship with him. He woos us with love with promises of peace and safety. And so uh, that's why another reason why I do not give credit, I do not uh, give any credibility to these so-called visions and dreams about hell. Okay, there's lots of factors involved. And uh, so take them all with a grain of salt. Look primarily to what Scripture teaches, and that will be a good guide for you on your doctrine of hell. Get my book and uh, or take my online course, The Discipleship Group to uh, just see and uh, what, I, what my, my views are on hell, okay? And hopefully that will lead you to live in peace as well. God is a God of peace. And in- incidentally, that's sort of what we're going to be seeing today, this concept of God is a God of peace, as we look at Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 7. So let's move into that study.
So up to this point in Ephesians, we have uh, in chapter one, we learned that God has given us great riches and inheritance so that we can do what God has called us to do. And in chapter two, we've seen that one of these great riches, one of these aspects of our inheritance is this amazing revelation in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, about how to live in peace with those people that we used to hate. That's what Ephesians 2 is all about. Jesus showed us a new way to live. So now in Ephesians 3, so we're starting today, Paul goes on to encourage the Ephesian Christians to follow the example of Jesus that we just learned about in Ephesians 2 and live in peace with, with others. All right, so that as we do that, the world watches us and hopefully they learn to live in peace with one another as well. And uh, now I want to say right from the start that uh, many people read Paul's letter to the Ephesians quite differently than this. And I've been saying that as we go along. But as a result of many people reading Ephesians differently than what I am proposing here, as a result of that, they often don't know what to do with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, because it doesn't seem to fit the flow of what they think Paul is saying. It fits perfectly with, I, with what I think Paul is saying, which is one of the reasons I think uh, my approach to Ephesians is, is best here. But usually what happens is when these, when these other pastors and, and professors and commentary authors and writers and so on come to Ephesians chapter 3, they look at this—well, they, they say it's one of Paul's rabbit trails— You'll often hear them say that Paul is famous for going off on these tangents, on these rabbit trails that really don't fit with the rest of what Paul is saying. And, uh, you know, he, he gets back. So, so what they would say is, look at the first part there in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, for this reason. Okay, and they say that starts this rabbit trail. Uh, actually, in verse 2, the rabbit trail starts. And then Paul picks back up. He gets back to his main point down in verse 14, where Paul says, okay, let's get back to this point. What he says is, for this reason, again. Okay, so they see, see, everything between verses 2 and 13 is sort of a rabbit trail, a tangent. And it doesn't really fit with what Paul is saying. The ironic thing about that approach is most pastors and Bible scholars, New Testament teachers, and so on, say that Paul is one of the most logical and consistent thinkers and writers in the Bible, and that's true. Okay, Paul is very logical in his approach. Uh, but then how, if that's, if that's the case, why can we say that Paul goes off on these rabbit trails and tangents? Because that's not really following the logic. That's allowing yourself to get sidetracked. And logical thinkers tend not to do that. So you really can't have it one way or the other. In my view, it's much better to understand Ephesians the way I've presented it here and to see that Ephesians 3 verses 1 through 13 fits perfectly with what Paul has written in Ephesians up to this point and along as well with everything that follows. Okay, so verses 1 through 13 are not a rabbit trail, not a tangent, but uh, just a complete logical outflow result of what Paul has said up to uh, this point in the letter. Okay, so um, what has what Paul said? I think that basically Ephesians 1 through 3 almost could be summarized in one word. Peace. Okay, especially chapters 2 and 3. Peace. Okay, what Paul is saying is, through Jesus, there is peace with God and peace with one another. 
And together, all of us who see this peace, know this peace, experience this peace, are to work towards universal peace. We do that by living at peace with one another, other Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we, in that way, lead the rest of the world to peace as well. And that brings the principalities and powers back into their proper place. We've talked previously about the principalities and powers. It's not referring primarily to demons or angels, anything like that, but sort of the ruling authorities of this world, uh, which we might call politics or government or corporations, these sorts of things, okay? Leads them to live in peace with the rest of the people in the world as well. It's all about peace. Okay, and so Paul's point in Ephesians 3 is, hey, look, Ephesians, Ephesian Christians, since Jesus showed us the way to peace, you should live in peace with one another. And you just read Ephesians 3, 14 to the end of the chapter, and that is what Paul is talking about. Unity and peace is the whole point. Okay, uh, so that, that's what Paul is writing. And, and that fits also with what Paul is writing here in the first 13 verses of chapter 3. Paul knows that before he can ask the Ephesian Christians to live in peace with one another, he needs to show them how he himself is following the example of Jesus in living in peace with, with what the world would call his enemies. Okay? So that is what Paul is doing in Ephesians 3, 1-13. Ephesians 2, Jesus is our example of how to live in peace, and so you, Christians, should live in peace with the world, but I know that's a difficult thing to say, difficult thing to do, so let me show you by my example on how I am doing that. And that's what Paul is showing, explaining in verses 1 through 13. Okay, now, I'm not going to be able to cover these 13 verses all in one podcast study, so I'm going to split it up into two. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 this time, and then Ephesians 3, 8 through 13 next time. Okay? So, let's just start verse 1. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. All right. He, he begins by pointing out that his attempt to follow Jesus in the way of peace ended with him in prison. Okay, Paul, Paul, this is one of the prison epistles. Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesian Christians from prison. He's in prison in Rome. Okay, now, even though he's a prisoner in Rome, look what he says. Does he say, I, Paul, the prisoner of Caesar, the prisoner of Rome? No, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul knows he is right where Jesus wants him to be. Uh, and indeed, prison is the natural and normal consequence of someone who seeks peace in a world filled with violence. Isn't that odd? We think the violent criminals and so on, they're the ones who should go to prison. But in a violent world, it's the peaceful ones who are viewed as the enemies because they don't play the game the way the rest of the world wants. Uh, and, and we see that going on in our world right now when corruption and evil rules it's the law keepers, those who are, are, want to obey the law and maintain peace. They're the ones that are viewed as the enemies and treated as the enemies. That's what happened with Paul as well. It happened with Jesus. Jesus sought peace. What did the world do? Crucified him. Okay. Paul sought peace. What happened to him? He ends up in prison where uh, he eventually died. Okay. 
at least if, if church tradition tells us that. Okay, so when peace is the goal, peace might not actually be achieved in the way we think or expect. Instead, we might end up in prison or, or possibly death. But from Paul's perspective, that is better than violence and bloodshed. Okay, so in a world that is ruled and dominated by violence, those who seek peace are viewed as the enemies. They must be silenced, they must be deplatformed, they must be canceled, they must be imprisoned, and if necessary, they must be killed. So, so Paul is in prison, that's what he's talking about here in verse 1, because he followed Jesus into the way of peace. Jesus sent him to prison. Okay, and then Paul says, this is, he's a prisoner for you Gentiles. He's not blaming the Gentiles in Ephesus for this. Okay, that's not the point here. He's not saying, mm, it's your fault. Uh, Paul is saying that he's a prisoner as an example to the Gentiles. It's what I've been saying uh, in the introduction to this podcast. He, he, he's showing this as, uh, he's in prison as a way to reach the Gentiles with the truth that, that they are now accepted, that they are now part of the family of God. They are now welcomed. Paul is saying, I'm in prison for your sake to help you, to show you how this whole peace thing works, all right? And we know that this is what Paul is saying because of what he says in verses 2 through 13. Let's just start in verse 2. Paul writes, he goes on, he says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Okay, so Paul is sort of summarizing a little bit of what he would have taught to the Ephesian Christians last time he was in their city, in their town. Um, and he, he doesn't know if the Gentiles specifically had heard of this, which is why it's, if indeed you have heard. But he's going to summarize it a little bit. This word dispensation, it's really not a word we use very much anymore. Uh, we did see it back in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 10. But uh, the Greek word is oikonomia. And oiko means house, nomia means law. So these are uh, laws of the house, household rules. Uh, it, they're the if you live in a house, obviously you you do. It's sort of the way the the house runs, the the rules and guidelines and behaviors that are considered acceptable in the house. The same with a business. Every every business and company has house rules. Restaurants have house rules. Okay, just think of it that way. Uh, synonym, a, a better translation than dispensation might have been management, okay? Uh, orderly arrangement, something like that, since people don't use dispensation much. But Paul is saying that uh, these house rules were given to him uh, so, and it's, as a way to show the world how to, to live, okay? He's a steward. He's a manager of a certain task or responsibility, which is to show the world how to live and function in this world, following the example of Jesus. Okay, and what are these guidelines? What are these house rules? Well, Paul says there in verse 2, of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Paul was sent by God to declare peace to the Gentiles, grace to the Gentiles. Absolutely free, scandalous, shocking grace. Uh, and specifically, in context of what we've seen in Ephesians 2, that there are no more insiders and outsiders. Everybody is an insider now with God. And that's true of the Jews and also the Gentiles. Okay? And, and so, so that's what Paul is talking about here. So verse 3 and 4 then. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. 
Okay, so there is a brief aside, but Paul is just, again, reminding his readers of what he's written about before, taught about before, and he did this in two places already, in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, and in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, this concept of the mystery. And if you remember what we uh, studied and learned there, what is this mystery? This mystery is this idea that, that, again, I've just summarized, there are no more insiders or outsiders. All are one now in Jesus Christ, on equal footing before God. And that was the great mystery that, that most people didn't know in Paul's day or in Jesus' day. Lots of people thought the Jews were the chosen people. They're the ones that God loves the most. They're the favorite ones. And then there's everybody else, the Gentiles. And if you want to be loved by God, accepted by God, well, you're going to have to become a Jew. You're going to have to convert to Judaism. And even then, you're sort of going to be a second-class Jew, never really fully loved or accepted like a regular Jew. But, but uh, Paul comes along, Jesus comes along and says, no. All right? Uh, everybody's equal. Uh, Jesus has opened the door for all people to be part of the family of God. Everybody is on equal footing before God. That's this mystery. And Paul goes on to talk about it in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Okay, so this is, Jesus came and revealed this. Paul is now teaching it, spreading it around the world, this message, this mystery that wasn't known, previously known in ages past. Um, And it, it, it was a mystery. This idea that God wanted to love and accept all people. Okay, but now it's been revealed by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Of course, through Jesus and also through the inspired teachings and writings of Paul and to his apostles and prophets. Again, we've seen earlier the apostles refers primarily to the the, the Christian uh, followers of Jesus who were alive. Many were alive at the days of Paul. Paul would be one of them, the Apostle Paul. And their teachings are now found in the writings of the New Testament. The prophets, of course, are primarily the teachings that were found in the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. And as Paul is indicating here, many of those Old Testament Hebrew Hebrew teachings did include, did talk about this idea that everybody was on equal footing with God, that everybody was accepted, everybody was part of God's family. It's not necessarily that Jesus came and changed it. Jesus came to reveal the truth of what God thought about everybody. And Paul is saying, even the prophets wrote about it. They didn't understand it. Most people didn't understand it. Uh, It was not made known in ages past, even though it was contained in the writings of the prophets. Okay? Uh, Jesus revealed the truth that God loves everybody and has always loved everybody, that everybody's always been forgiven and accepted. And Jesus declared it, Jesus showed it, now Paul is declaring it, and Paul is showing it. Jews and Gentiles, everybody, now live in peace with each other, they're on equal footing with God, and this is the consistent teaching uh, of, of Scripture, and example of Jesus, and teaching of Paul as well. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Again, a summary of what Paul has said in Ephesians chapter 2. Instead of division, strife, and rivalry, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, showed us on the cross, Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, 
We're now one family, fellow heirs, a part of the same body, partakers of the promises. Ephesians 2, 11-22. This is a good summary. Ephesians 3, 6 is a great summary of Ephesians chapter 2. Um, and, and, and that's, again, Paul is just reminding them here of that. So finally then, verse 7, Paul states that he has effectively carried out this task of revealing the mystery of peace, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. All right, the word minister here is the Greek word uh, diakonos, which could be translated as deacon. It means servant. Uh, Many churches have deacons, okay? They're, They're servants. That's where the title comes from. At someone who serves the church. And so that's what Paul, that's how Paul views himself. He calls himself a servant, a minister of the gospel. And Paul is saying that this ministry was given to him uh, by God as a gift. The, the term effective working is energion, means energy. It's a very energetic. The word power is dunamis, okay, which is they didn't have dynamite in Paul's day, but that's where we get our word dynamite, very powerful force, dunamis. Uh, Paul is basically saying, Paul, uh, that God is working in Paul with energy, energion, with power, dynamite, dunamis, to carry out the task given to him. Okay? Now, is this sort of an aside? It is, but Paul is just leading up to this concept of why he is in prison. He's summarizing everything in a nice, neat package bundle, everything that he has taught so far in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, to show why living this way has led him into prison, led him to prison. Uh, And a lot of times we think that God's power, you know, dunamis, God's energy is going to lead to popularity and fame, but Paul is going to say, no, sometimes, oftentimes it leads you into death like Jesus or prison like me. Uh, and so Paul isn't done with this point, right, about why he's in prison. He's just summarized it. He's going to get into this concept of prison uh, in verses 8 through 13, which we cover next time. But we're going to see just that as a result of preaching peace to the Gentiles, this threatened the principalities and powers of the world. Okay? It's not demons, not, not fallen angels. That's not the principalities and powers. The powers are the things that rule this world, governments and corporations, um, education, economics, even science and medicine. Okay, We see that going on right now. Big tech, big media, uh, big medical corporations and certain leaders who have motives for power. That's Those are principalities and powers. And when Paul, when you and I stand against them, what do they do? They lash out to protect their power. Uh, in the case of Paul, they put Paul in prison. Okay, but Paul doesn't lash out in return. He doesn't fight violence with violence. What does Paul do? Well, he has the goal of showing the church how to live at peace in this world, with the ultimate goal of showing the world how to live in peace in this world. Okay, so Paul is in prison as an example that there is a better way to live in peace. Uh, In Ephesians 2, Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians that we as the church are to lead the world into the way of peace. That's easier said than done. So the first part of Ephesians 3, which we're in the middle of now, Paul shows 
that he himself is an example to the church of how to live in peace with others. Paul is in prison as a result of his stand for peace. But Paul knows that this will only serve to prove the truth of what he's teaching. He leads by example, so that we as the church can also lead by example and ultimately lead the world into the peace of Jesus Christ. That's what we've begun to see in Ephesians 3, 1-7 through today. That's where we will pick back up next time with Ephesians chapter 3, 8. And we'll go through verse 13 to see how Paul continues to make this point before he finally ultimately tells the church, now you live this way as well, which will be verses 14 to the end of chapter, uh, yeah, the end of chapter 3. Okay, hey, thanks for listening today. Hope you have a great week, and we will join you next time when we pick back up with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. See you then.